Hello, it's Monday, the 5th of December, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Woo. South Korea is set to take on the footballing powerhouse Brazil at the 2022 World Cup in Qatar after the team put up a heroic performance to beat Portugal last week. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. And then this week, we'll head straight into our Monday Sports Roundup for a special World Cup edition to talk more about Korea's monumental achievement and the challenge ahead. And then later, for our in-depth, we'll find out the prospects of a Tesla Gigafactory being built in South Korea after President Yoon held a video call with Elon Musk last month. Let's begin Korea 24. That was the sound of our enthused KBS sportscasters watching as Team Korea's talisman Son Heung-min sprinted up the pitch and found teammate Hwang Yi-chan who scored an injury-time winner that saw South Korea into the round of 16 with an upset win over Portugal at the 2022 Qatar World Cup. Now the team face an even bigger challenge as they take on the might of Brazil in Stadium 974 in Doha And the big question on everyone's lips is, can Bento's Reds pull off another big upset following that stunning 2-1 defeat of Portugal? For more on this and our other headlines of the day, we're joined in the studio uh, by a new voice on the show, veteran journalist Chris Price, who will be bringing us the headlines today. Chris, hello. Hello to you. Yes, there is no doubt that South Korea will be entering the match as underdogs against the heavily favoured Brazil team. So what are the chances of another giant killing results, do you think? Well, Reds do have an uphill climb in what is a make-or-break game against the five-time World Cup winners Brazil, who did finish top of Group G and are indeed favourites to go all the way. South Korea managed to finish second in Group H, but that was thanks to Ghana holding Uruguay to two goals and even after scoring that huge upset win over Portugal. But I think it's yet to be seen whether this is the start of a resurgent Korean team or a miraculous one-off. Right, so that game against Portugal was uh, last Friday local time in Qatar. And then this uh, next game is Brent's Brazil is going to be Monday, 10pm local time, which is 4am on Tuesday here in Korea. So can you tell us a bit more about this match? Well, um, Korea ranked 28th and have only beaten the South American powerhouse once in past seven showings. And that includes a 5-1 thrashing in Seoul just recently in June. Also, bear in mind the team's campaign was off to a lacklustre start in Qatar with a scoreless draw against Uruguay, followed by a 3-2 loss to Ghana. So if Korea's going to defy the odds again, you know, it'll be only the second time the team's progressed to the World Cup quarterfinals following 2002 South Korea-Japan World Cup, where they finished fourth. uh, The last World Cup, 2010, they were knocked out in the round of 16. I mean, in some respects, it's anybody's guess. Sure. They are capable, have shown themselves capable with the Portugal win. And again, is this a resurgence in the team? 
or unfortunately just a one-up. We'll have to see. It is going to be an absolute uphill battle, of course, but uh, uh, we'll see how they get on. We'll be previewing this game in more detail for our Monday Sports Roundup, which today is coming right after this news briefing, so do stick around for that. OK, let's move on to our other headlines of the day. Turning to the diplomatic front first, President Yun sung yeol and Vietnamese President Wang Son Phuc sat down in Seoul on Monday for a bilateral summit to discuss measures to strengthen Seoul-Hanoi relations. Can you tell us more? Yeah, the two presidents, President Yoon and President Nguyen, held talks at President Yoon's office with the South Korea assessing that the two countries have built exemplary relations, in his words, the joint prosperity and cooperation over the past 30 years since diplomatic ties were originally established, and he called for another such 30 years. He called the summit with President Nguyen a vigorous opening of a new 30-year-long joint journey. Uh, in return, the Vietnamese leader thanked President Nguyen for his hospitality and stressed his, cons- his country's consistent priority with its relations with South Korea. Uh, he proposed then the two countries strengthen further their bilateral cooperation for joint prosperity and, of course, regional and global peace and stability. Nguyen arrived in South Korea Sunday and is the first foreign leader to make a state visit to the country since June took office in May. During the summit, the two leaders discussed cooperation on a wide array of areas, including politics, security and the economy, as well, of course, as regional and international issues. Moving on, we got some later breaking news this afternoon. Reports are coming that North Korea fired artillery rounds into the inter-Korean military buffer zone in the East and West Seas on Monday afternoon. What more do we know at this point? Well, the Joint Chiefs of Staff issued a statement saying it had detected the firing of around 130 projectiles. That would be my word, because... They say they were presumably fired from multiple rocket launcher systems, which Mm. obviously are not normally used to fire artillery shells. Mm. They were fired into the buffer zones on Monday afternoon from an area in Kumgang County in Gangwon Province towards the East Sea and from Jiangsan Cape in South Wangwei Province toward the West Sea, with the launches beginning around 2.59pm, according to the JCS. Uh, The Joint Chief said... It immediately, or they immediately, sent a warning message to the North for violating the inter-Korean military agreement and calling for a halt to any further provocative actions. Uh, bear in mind as well, this barrage comes about a month after the North launched some 80 projectiles into the military buffer zone in the East Sea, uh, again from Kongan County. Yes, we'll perhaps have uh, more information on this uh, latest provocation by North Korea in the coming day or so. Let's turn to the latest on the unionised truckers' strike, which continued into its 12th day today. The government is seeking to confirm if truckers have begun to comply with its order requiring them to return Mm. to work. In response, the union is seeking a review of the order by the country's human rights watchdog. Yeah, the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transport began an on-site inspection today regarding compliance and the inspection centres on hundreds of truckers in the cement industry, I believe they were the first to go on strike, whose deadline to resume work has passed following the issuance of the return to work order last Tuesday. Now, failure to do so will mean the revocation of their licences. However, this is unlikely to happen straight away as they will be given an opportunity to explain their actions. As unionised construction workers launched a separate strike in support of the cement truckers, also on Monday, Transport Minister Wan Hee-ryong 
inspected an apartment complex site in the southeastern port city of Busan, where construction has been suspended. In addition, the Fair Trade Commission also reattempted an on-site investigation of the cargo truckers' solidarities office in western Seoul for alleged violations of the antitrust law. This is three days after a first attempt failed in the face of resistance by union members. Meanwhile, in response, the Korean Public Service and Transport Workers' Union, which includes the cargo truckers' solidarity, has requested the National Human Rights Commission to review the state orders, claiming that they infringe upon the truckers' basic rights. Uh, next, we have an update on a story we covered first on Friday. Over the weekend, a former National Security Advisor, Sohun's arrest warrant was issued. This was in connection with the previous government's handling of the 2020 shooting death of a South Korean fisheries official by North Korean soldiers. Can you tell us more? Yeah, the warrant was issued Saturday, Saturday sorry, yeah, ahead of the upcoming trial with the Seoul Central District Court citing the gravity of the crime and possible evidence destruction in view of the suspect's status and ties with other figures. Now, this marks the first arrest of a senior official of the previous Moon Jae-in administration. The former spy chief and national security adviser at the time of the incident is accused of deciding to conceal the North's killing of Lee Dae-jun in 2020 and instructing government agencies to delete related intelligence during a minister's meeting held the day after Lee's death. He's also suspected of ordering the Defence Ministry, the Intelligence Agency and the Coast Guard to fabricate reports to make it seem as if Lee was defecting or had defected to the North. On Monday, he was questioned for the first time since being arrested. With certain custody for up to 20 days, the prosecution is expected to grill him in detail surrounding the allegations. We'll wrap up our news briefing there. Chris, thank you for those updates today. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Against the odds, South Korea beat Portugal in their final Football World Cup group game last Friday and made it to the knockout stages for only the third time in their history. They now face the daunting prospect of taking on the world number one Brazil in just a few hours. To fully unpack the incredible result against Portugal and look ahead to this next match, we have brought forward our Monday Sports Roundup today for this special occasion. And we have two guests joining us on the line today. First, we connect with, once again, Paul Williams, football journalist and the founding editor of the Asian Game, who was at the Portugal game in Qatar. Paul, thank you for joining us again. No, thank you for having me on again. And today we also have the Korean football writer Steve Han on the line as well. Steve, hello. It's uh, great to have you back on the show as well. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you. How's it going? It's going great. Uh, just about recovering from that remarkable game from Friday. Uh, South Korea with a come-from-behind 2-1 victory over Portugal in their third and final Group H match at Education City Stadium on Friday local time. I think very few people gave them a chance 
including you, Paul, who I'm going to point out, you said uh, you thought it'd be too much for Korea when we spoke to you last week. Uh, I'm not going to let you forget that. Uh, But anyway, Paul, uh, I'm only saying that because I'm jealous. You were at the game, uh, so I'm very jealous about that. Can you sum up what you saw? What did you make of South Korea's performance? It's one of those rare occasions when I'm very happy to be proven wrong that Korea got the job done. Uh, it, it, it didn't look like it looked like I was going to be proven correct after about five minutes when Portugal scored. Um, and like, okay, this looks like it could be difficult for Korea, but they, they still managed to find a way to, um, to to fight and claw their way back into the game. I don't think it was I don't think it was Korea's best performance that they've ever produced, but they got the result, and that's really all that matters for them at the end of the day. Um, that break and that goal at the end was just electric when Sonny picked up the ball and you looked in front and saw that there wasn't, you know, weren't that many Portuguese players ahead of him. You thought something could uh, be on the cards here. This could be sort of Sonny's big World Cup moment that we keep talking about over and over again. And it wasn't his moment uh, per se individually, but uh, the ball he laid off for Huangi Chan to score and it was, it was electric. Um, Fair to say, I was up dancing out of my seat in the uh, in the media tribune as well. Um, but yeah, the, it, the the drama wasn't over them because Korea had done their job, but they then had to uh, have an agonising wait to find out what happened in the other game. Yeah, it was an excruciating, excruciating ten minutes or so to see if the result in the other Group H game between Uruguay and Ghana would go their way. The players were huddled in the middle of the pitch, uh, watching it on their phones. Remarkably. Paul, what was that like to wait and describe the atmosphere once the result came through and they were able to celebrate? The atmosphere for those six or seven minutes, however long it was, it was tense inside the stadium. So pretty much the entire stadium had emptied out and you looked around and all you could see was a sea of red. All the Korean fans remained inside the stadium. Um, I don't know how many of them had access to match vision on their phone, but they were certainly checking every app possible to, to keep abreast of the score, even up in the media tribune where we get uh, TVs, we were frantically trying to switch the TVs to the Ghana-Uruguay game to, to find what was happening. Uh, couldn't manage to do that, but we saw one about two rows in front of us. There was another Australian journalist with me as well. So we were frantically peering down about two rows of, uh, of seats to try and uh, watch this little screen to find out what was happening in the other game. And I can only imagine what that wait would have been like for the plays in the middle of the pitch as well. As you said, they were huddled around the phones, um, got a chance to speak to um, Son in the mix zone after the game and asked him about that moment. And he said, he said, actually, the players were surprisingly calm. They were, he was, he was sort of confident that they had done what they needed to do. Um, mm. And whichever way the result fell, he was, I won't say what he said, but he said he was effing proud of the <laughs> players um, for, uh, for getting the job done. Um, and doing what they needed to do. Um, and if the result went their way, perfect. But he was proud regardless that the players um, had been able to, to get the win. And when it went their way, surprisingly, the, the crowd reacted about five seconds before the players did. Mm. Um, so I don't know whether the players, what they were watching was slightly delayed. But right. you heard this massive roar go up through the crowd and the players remained static in the middle of the pitch. And then, yeah, they finally erupted and sprinted towards the fans. And it was pandemonium from then on. Yeah, it sounds like it was magical. And we have to give credit to Ghana as well for fighting till the end, despite being 2-0 down in their game and suffering the disappointment of getting knocked out. They had 
other reasons for wanting to prevent Uruguay from progressing, of course, due to their history from the 2012 South Africa World Cup. Still, uh, Korean fans were very grateful. Steve, let me turn to you now. What was your assessment of that game? (laughs) My assessment um, is that this game was an absolute madness. Um, I mean, you know, was this... You know, in terms of pure football quality, Korea's best performance under Paolo Bento? You know, absolutely not. But was this their best game in terms of, you know, when you take into the drama, when you take into the significance of this win, was this their best game? I would say absolutely yes as well. You know, for much of this game, you know, as Paul said, uh, Korea struggled to hold the ball for much of the game because Portugal dictated the run of play for, for, much, for much of the game for some, for some odd reason. Even when Portugal was on the front foot, there was just this strange feeling that Korea always had a chance to steal this game. Mm. Um, but to see them leave it until the 91st minute to take all three points that ultimately took them to the last 16 of the World Cup for the first time in 12 years. I mean, this was truly the best K-drama of 2022. <laughs> I love that. The best K-drama of 2022. And uh, as we mentioned, it's only the third time that Korea has made it to the knockout stages. How would you rank this result in the history of uh, South Korean football? It's, it's got to be up there with the best of them, I think. Um, you know, you go back to that historic World Cup in 2002, and take into account the 2-0 win over Poland that gave Korea their first win in a World Cup history. And, you know, the 1-0 win over Portugal that took them to the last 16 of the World Cup for the first time in history. And that 2-1 win over Italy, the famous one in the last 16. And the win in penalties over Spain in the quarterfinal. You know, I think this 2-1 win over Portugal last week, it, it's it's right up there with, with, with those wins. Mm. And, you know, and then you take into account, you know, Korea's first ever World Cup win on a foreign soil over Togo in 2006. And, you know, their win over Greece in 2010 that eventually pushed them into the last 16 for the first time outside of Korea at a, at a World Cup. You know, th- I think this win over Portugal, it clearly ranks higher than, than those wins for me because um, the, the, the dramatic element of it and also the circumstances, because this generation of players for Korea, you know, they're considered to be arguably the, the, the most talented group ever. And, you know, with Son Heung-min now being 30 years old, um, for this team to go home empty-handed from this World Cup would have been a massive disappointment. So mm. to, to to see them walk away with with something to show for, um, it's you know it's 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 certainly great to see. Indeed, it is. Uh, Paul, uh, the Wolves forward Hwang Chan came on off the bench late in the game. He scored the winning goal in the ninety-first minute, as we said, after a wonderful pass from Son Heung-min. Uh, Huang, he won the Man of the Match award. Uh, how vital would you say his contribution was? And was there any other player that stood out for you? I think his contribution was critical, really. And his introduction, he showed when he came off the bench in the you know, 20, 30 minutes that he got on the pitch, just how much Korea had missed him in those previous two games because he he just provides a directness to their attack. He provides a counterbalance to Son on the other flank and, you know, as, as good as the players are that have come in to replace him, they're not Huang Chan. And um, I think him being inside releases some of the burden on, on Son Hun Min because it's, it's another player that the defence has to really worry about because he has that capability about him. So the team doesn't have to drive everything then through Son Hun Min, which at times you can probably be a little bit critical that everything tries to go through Son Heung Min, but when you've got Huang out there as well, um, he provides another dangerous outlet. So I thought his introduction was was critical and his involvement was critical, and 
It'll be fascinating now to see whether Paolo Bento is tempted to start him tonight against Brazil, um, knowing how important he is to this side. Steve, uh, Solomon Min had come into this tournament with a major injury around his left eye, meaning he had to wear a mask. He struggled to impose himself on the game so far, and there was even some criticism of his performances in the first two games. Uh, But he was the one who managed to carry the ball pretty much the length of the pitch, then thread that key pass through three Portuguese players to find Huang for that winning goal. How important was this result for Son personally, do you think? Well, I mean, you know, even before this World Cup, I've been telling just about everyone that I've spoken to that there's no question in my mind that he's a fantastic player. There's, there's Obviously, there's no question about that, you know, but surprisingly, he has yet to have that landmark moment for Korea. I mean, at least until, you know, at least before the Portugal game, mm. he, he has yet to have that landmark moment for Korea, meaning a winning goal for Korea in a World Cup game. Just like how the previous legends, legend, uh, the, the Korean football legends have done in the past for for, for the world in, in the World Cup for Korea, but that particular play, you know, even though it wasn't his goal, you know, that fifty to sixty yard run, and then he threaded that pass through at least three Portuguese players to find Huang Yichan at the end of his run into the box. You know, you talk about a killer ball. I mean, I hate to make it sound like I'm downplaying Son Min's ability here, but because I'm really not, but you know, I had no idea that that, that he had that in him. To mm. be honest with you, and, you know, we all know him as the ultimate goal scoring player, uh, you know, the Premier League Golden Boot winning player. But that really was a Lionel Messi's kind of play right there, and just absolutely amazing piece of play. And you know, Son still hasn't scored a winning goal for Korea in a World Cup, but I would say that that particular play was the best play that he has ever made for Korea. Beats any goal that he scored for Korea, really. And and now he has that landmark moment for him. Uh, well, I guess he did uh, score that winning goal against Germany in the last World Cup, but that was a dead rubber as such. Korea had already been uh, knocked out, so it was playing more for pride. And and it's also difficult to call that a winning goal because the winning goal was actually scored by Kim Young Won. Right, right. Son actually scored that goal to, to, to seal the game. So it's, right, right, it, there's a, there, there, there's a, a bit of a room for, for, for argument there, I guess. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yes, that was a 2-0 two, two defeat, a uh, 2-0 win, of course. Okay, well, it was an absolutely breathless, incredible result against Portugal that will live long in the memory for Korean fans. It also means Korea's World Cup is not over yet. They're going to have to recover both emotionally and physically for their biggest challenge yet. South Korea, ranked 28th in the FIFA rankings, will face world number one Brazil at Stadium 974 in Doha at 10pm Monday local time or 4am Tuesday here in Korea. Brazil have... uh, been most pundits top pick to win this tournament and they have shown their class in glimpses of the last two weeks it's going to be a mountain to climb for korea but paul i understand that brazil have some injuries to worry about uh, could you bring us up to date on that front first uh, which players are likely to uh, miss out in the upcoming match yeah gabriel jesus i think has been ruled out for the tournament um tellers as well there's some injury concerns over him they, they did confirm that neymar who um got it an injury earlier in the tournament. He will be fit to play, though, so that's a bit of a blow for Korea because, obviously, if they missed Neymar as well, then um, yeah, that would have been you know, fantastic for, for Korea's chances to have a player like Neymar missing. So um, they did confirm that, uh, that Neymar will play. It's going to be difficult. I'm not going to say never because you can never say... Uh, you never rule anything out in a World Cup match, in a one-off match. Anything, anything can happen. And we saw 
even you know Australia almost got the job done over Argentina the other night, and a lot of people thought that would be impossible. So you know, Korea's certainly got the talent that they can trouble Brazil. But you go back only five or six months, they played a friendly in Korea, and Brazil won that five-one. So how much you take from that coming into this game, you don't know, but it does prove that there is a, a significant sort of difference between the two sides, but it's a one-off game of football and anything can happen. So um, it'll be difficult, but let's hope, uh, let's hope Korea get the job done. Paul, what makes Brazil so formidable at the moment? What are their strengths and which players uh, should South Korea look out for? They've just got an all-round well-balanced team at the moment. You've got players like... Rich Allison, who some would know really well from, from playing at Tottenham. You've got Neymar, who's you know one of the best players in the world. We saw what Mbappe did for, uh, for France last night. You know, Neymar will certainly be inspired to, to try and um, go one better than, uh, than his PSG teammate as well. So they're just an incredibly well-balanced side. They've got talent all across the park. And as I said, it's going to be, it's going to be difficult. The defence for Korea is going to be, need to be at the very top of their game. Um, you know, Kim Min Jae is still under under an injury cloud as to whether he'll even even play. Um, I think they're going to need Kim Min Jae out there. Um, their fullbacks, I think, have been a little bit weak defensively. Mm. Korea's fullbacks have been, been a little bit weak defensively so far this tournament. Kim Jin Soo's been great going forward, but less so at the back. So they're just going to need to be at the very top of their game um, and and play very solidly, not leave a lot of space for. Uh, Brazil to play into and then try and catch them on the break as they did at the end of the Portugal game. Steve, how daunting a prospect is Brazil? What have you made in the, in the tournament so far? Well, they're, they're, they're daunting. Um, very daunting. Um, you know, how daunting? They're, they're, they're daunting. But, um, you know, this is the best team in the world. Uh, they came into this tournament as the heavy, heavy favourites to win the whole thing. And I haven't seen enough evidence to suggest that we should be thinking any differently because that lost to Cameroon a couple of days ago. That was a different kind of game. Mm. And, um, but, 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 but I'll tell you what though. I mean, um, I'm the kind of guy who grew up watching Korean football through the nineties. So, you know, the, 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 these are, these were times when Korea literally was scared of playing against these, against any team outside of Asia, really. Um, so, you know, more than two decades later, to see this team go to a World Cup with most of their players playing in top competitions in Europe, you know, to see them beat Portugal the way they did, um, you know, one of, one of the best teams in Europe to make it past the group stages for Korea and, and, and to face Brazil of all teams, you know, the number one ranked team, like you said, I mean, you know, just the thought of these guys standing next to the Brazilian players when the national anthem is playing ahead of a knockout game at a World Cup. You know, it's already giving me goosebumps. You know, I might actually weep a little bit when this happens, but I actually see this. I, like, I, full, full disclosure, I cried my eyes out after the Portugal game. So I'm already getting emotional thinking about this game. So, so, so we'll see what happens. Sure, Steve. I'm sure you weren't the only one. Uh, so, Steve, what do you think then South Korea needs to do to be within a chance of uh, getting a result from this game? Well, I mean, Paul mentioned it right there. Their 5-1 loss to Brazil in June in Korea. Um, they need to look back at that game. I know, you know, some of the players that they were, you know, some of the players they were missing and uh, in that game, but they pretty much have to do the polar opposite of what they did in that game to have any chance of winning this game. Because you, when you go back and watch that game again, you know, Korea, it was very uncharacteristic of Korea under Paulo Bento to, to, to have 10 men behind the ball, um, to not press high up the pitch, 
to sit back and try to defend with two slow-footed central midfielders, you know, Pek Singo and Chung Wyong. It just didn't work out for Korea that day. Um, you know, so Korea will have to play a lot faster. They would have to be a lot more aggressive in terms of pressing high up the pitch. Um, they have to be brave. They have to take risks. Otherwise, they're just gonna they're gonna invite pressure from Brazil, and I don't think they have the defense to cope with that. So they're gonna have to be they're gonna have to be on their front foot for as much as they can, really, um, and try to attack Brazil and try to try to go at them. Because if they sit back and defend, I don't think they have a chance. Paul, a quick question on the stadium itself. Stadium uh, 974. I'm not sure if you've seen any of the games from that stadium, but understand that it is just a temporary stadium, one that will be dismantled after the event, mm. and that there is no air conditioning system uh, like the other stadiums do. South Korea has only played in stadiums where there is air conditioning, I believe. Do you think that could be a factor at all? Could potentially be a factor. Um, I haven't been to that stadium yet, so I'm going to experience it for the first time myself tonight. I did speak to a fellow journalist the other day that went to a game there. I can't remember which game it was, but he commented as well. But yeah, there is no air conditioning in the stadium, so it does get quite muggy, quite warm inside that stadium, more so than the other one. So that could certainly be a factor because you've got to factor in. We're also coming off a very, very short turnaround from the group stage to these games so um, you know the last thing the players probably want is to be playing in in warm conditions and it does still remain warm here at mm. night even though it is a 10 p.m kickoff so that will probably alleviate that somewhat but um, I am very much looking forward to getting to the, the stadium it's one of the stadiums that I wanted to see um, of course it's notoriously it's made out of uh, shipping containers as you said so um, it will be dismantled after the World Cup so it'll be fascinating to see what the stadium is like but um, I'm sure it's going to be warm for uh, for myself just sitting there inside the stadium. So I don't know what it's going to be like for the players having to run around for 90, potentially 120 minutes as well. So that could certainly be a factor. OK, let's uh, try to wrap things up. Paul, can you give us a, a brief prediction or uh, anything you want to say before the game? I know you said uh, you think it's going to be probably uh, just a step too far for South Korea. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the, I said that for the, the Portugal game and I've now got a little bit of egg on my face, as you reminded me, but I think Brazil is a uh, an, an entirely different challenge. As Steve said, they're the, the best team in the world and they're the best team in the world for a reason. So I think it's going to be, it's going to be difficult. All you want to see, you just want to see Korea be able to compete and stand up at this level. You don't want to see a heavy defeat. You want to see Korea go out, have their chances, take the game to Korea as much as they can um, and, uh, and and put and sort of show the, the best version of Korea that they can uh, that they can be. So I think I think it'll be difficult for them. But um, if Korea can score a goal, if they can um, put their best foot forward, then who knows what might happen. They just need a little bit of luck. But hmm. I'm going to suggest it'll probably be uh, Brazil 2 or 3 nil. I think. Steve, very briefly, Korea is not expected to win, of course, but they have also nothing to lose, right? Right. Um, you know, and at the same time, I hate to be put in a spot like this, you know, to predict a score for a game like this. is extremely tough, obviously. But, um, yeah, uh, I think it's going to be extremely hard, especially, you know, defensively for Korea to cope with the pressure that Brazil's going to put on them. It's going to be extremely hard for them. Uh, I do think they'll put up a better fight than they did in June. Just, I just have a gut feeling that they will be able to do that. But, you know, to predict the outcome of this game, I, I just don't think that Korea has the defense to, to, to cope with the pressure that, that Brazil is going to put on them. So I do think it's going to be 2-1, 3-1 Brazil win. But, you know, hoping for the best for Korea, obviously. 
Well, this game is the definition of a David versus Goliath matchup. The odds are stacked firmly against Korea. If Korea wins, it will be one of the biggest upsets in World Cup history. But one thing that Korea can say is that they've done it before. I am, of course, talking about the 2002 World Cup. Let's see if they can make history again. Steve, Paul, it's been great to have you on, Paul. Uh, we'll speak to you again tomorrow, I believe. And Steve, we'll hopefully speak to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Last month, President Yoon Sung-yeol held a video call with Tesla CEO Elon Musk, where the president asked the billionaire entrepreneur to build an electric vehicle gigafactory in South Korea. According to the president's office, Musk said that he was considering South Korea as one of the prime candidates for a new Tesla factory. To talk more about Yoon's request and the prospect of such a factory in Korea, we're joined on the line now by Im Chung-won, a reporter from the Korea Joang Daily, who's been reporting on the story. Ms. Im, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Okay, so first off, can you tell us what an electric vehicle gigafactory is exactly? How many are there across the world currently? Well, the term gigafactory was actually coined by Tesla CEO Elon Musk. It's known that he first mentioned a gigafactory during an investor's call back in 2013. Uh, Giga is a unit of measurement representing billions, as in gigawatts, with energy storage. So a gigafactory is a factory that produces electric vehicle batteries at gigawatt volumes. Um, Other companies haven't completely taken on the term gigafactory, but even if they're not calling them gigafactories, companies are building them. For example, Northfault, a Swedish battery firm, is building one in Europe currently. There are five Tesla gigafactories across the world right now, three in the U.S., in Nevada, Buffalo, New York, and Texas, and one in Berlin, Germany, and another in Shanghai, China. Mm. The one in China underwent expansion in September this year and made about half of all cars produced by Tesla last year. So Business Insider has reported that Musk plans on building as many as 10 to 12 gigafactories overall. Right, so there are essentially uh, huge factories making EV batteries and Tesla cars, and Musk is looking to build more of them, it seems. So with that in mind, last month, President Yoon held a video call with Musk. Uh, Could you give us details about what President Yoon and Musk discussed with regards to a new factory? Right. So uh, President Yoon and Musk talked about building a gigafactory here in South Korea during, like you said, a virtual meeting on November 3rd, uh, 23rd, two weeks ago. Um, This meeting happened because the two were supposed to meet in person at Bali during the G20 summit, but Musk canceled his business trip. So during the meeting, Yoon brought up the possibility of a Tesla factory being built in Korea first, and Musk responded positively to that. So this is according to the presidential office. Uh, Musk reportedly said that Korea is one of the top candidates for a Tesla factory, and he acknowledged that Tesla currently uses a lot of vehicle parts that are made in Korea already. During the call, Matt Musk also said that he estimates that the um, total value of vehicle parts purchases from Korea will exceed 13 trillion won, which is about 9.6 billion U.S. dollars by next year. Mm. I understand that Yoon said South Korea will offer tailored incentives to encourage Tesla to set up the gigafactory in South Korea. Do we know what these incentives are? 
Well, these tailored incentives mostly refer to lifting regulations on foreign companies so that Tesla doesn't face too much difficulties in operating in Korea. So Yoon talked to Reuters after his virtual meeting with Musk in an interview and said that his administration will do their best to support investment efforts into Tesla. Um, but which specific regulations Yoon was referring to lifting isn't known. But Yoon said the government will work on revising various regulations to fit to international standards. Um, and the senior presidential secretary for economic affairs, Choi Sang-mok, specified after the virtual meeting during a press briefing at Yongsan that the trade ministry in Kocha will be involved in forming a team dedicated to cooperating with Tesla for building a gigafactory in Korea. Okay, so President Yun is very keen, it seems, to attract Tesla to Korea. But I understand yeah. that there are other locations that are being considered for the next factory to be built. Uh, what other candidate locations are there? Well, we can't say for sure because Tesla hasn't spoken directly on this, but according to local reports that have buzzed a lot about the Gigafactory here after the virtual meeting, um, Indonesia and Canada are the other candidate locations. So Indonesia is the largest producer globally of nickel, which is a key component of electric vehicle batteries. And Canada is also very rich in nickel, cobalt, and graphite, all components of EV batteries. Mm. And because of the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, as we know, if electric vehicles are produced in North America, they can qualify for tax incentives. So that's another reason for Tesla to build a gigafactory in Canada instead of Korea. Right, so Korea does not have the advantages of having the necessary natural resources needed to create batteries like Canada or Indonesia, and there are some uh, tax incentives in Canada as well. So then why would Tesla consider South Korea then? What are South Korea's strengths and where would such a factory be built here? Um, South Korea's strengths is mainly that, like Musk mentioned during the virtual meeting with President Yoon, um, Tesla already makes use of many vehicle parts produced here. So if they build a gigafactory in Korea, it could result in a lot of synergy in production. Um, Wonju and Kangwon has been, in Kangwon has been mentioned as a candidate for a gigafactory location by local press here. Um, the Gangwon governor, Kim Jin-tae, said during a press briefing on November 28th that the provincial government is working to get a gigafactory built in Gangwon. Uh, another city mentioned is Koyang or Ilsan. Um, the mayor of Koyang, Lee Dong-hwan, said that his office will work to get a gigafactory built there and said that a formal request has been made to the Korean government so that the Koyang city office could get involved. Right, so it seems there's already competition building within Korea to house the factory. Definitely. Uh, that all sounds yeah. great, but uh, what are the challenges or some of the roadblocks ahead that could get in the way of establishing a gigafactory in Korea? Well, there are um, various roadblocks. Um, one could, the most um, prominent could be the relatively rigid labor market in Korea and the strength of other candidate locations, as mentioned before. Um, as we know, Musk is also CEO of SpaceX and Twitter, and Musk's acquisition of Twitter knocked out most of Twitter Korea. Many have pointed out that this could be a problem under Korean labor law. And so we can say that Musk's business practices and Korea's labor environment clash. So this could be a potential problem and a roadblock. Um, and this has actually been mentioned also during the press briefing with the presidential secretary for economic affairs, Choi, after the virtual meeting between Yoon and Musk that the Korean labor environment and regulations could be a minus factor in getting a Tesla video factory built here. And the presidential office did acknowledge this in response and said that any difficulties 
global companies um, face or will face in the matter will be resolved actively by the government. Um, another roadblock is the fact that South Korea is lower, like you said, actually just near zero on natural resources, and the IRA could also be a roadblock, although the Korean government has said previously that it is working closely with the U.S. to adjust um, restrictive regulations on EVs that are made in Korea. Right. It will also be interesting to see if uh, local car makers uh, like Hyundai or Kia, who have been aggressively expanding in the EV market in recent years, uh, would have any concerns about Tesla uh, building a factory in Korea, the competition. OK, then, to sum up, President Yun has made this direct request to Musk. Uh, what do you think are the chances that South Korea could be the next location for a Tesla gigafactory then? Do you think South Korea could outdo other candidates? Well, Indonesia and Canada, as we've um, discussed, are um, quite strong candidates, but South Korea does have some advantages to hosting a gigafactory for um, electric vehicle batteries. First of all, we have companies like LG Energy Solution, which is the second largest EV battery maker in the world and is one of the suppliers for Tesla already. Mm. And Samsung SDI and SK On are also parts of a strong supply network of battery providers. Um, and secondly, the Korean auto industry itself is very large and has a lot of domestic companies making a wide range of auto components other than just batteries as well. And thirdly, um, Korea has free trade agreements, or FTAs, with about 80 countries overall, which means that Korea is a very strong export base and can, be, can respond agilely to demand from various regions of the globe for electric vehicles. I see. OK, well, it seems it's early doors yet. Uh, we'll see if we hear any more about such plans in the coming year. Uh, we'll leave it there. Ms. Im, thank you for briefing us on the situation today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 15.01 points, or 0.62% on Monday, ending the day at 2,419.32. The tech-heavy Kosdaq rose, however, gaining 0.37 points, or 0.05%, closing the day at 733.32. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 7.31 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,292.61. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Korea Trending, our daily segment looking at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have with us Walter Lee. Walter, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jang How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Hope you're doing well. Mm -hmm. What topics do you have for us today? Okay, so first we'll talk about a man being arrested on charges of killing an elementary school student while driving under the influence in Seoul's Gangnam district. We'll also find about the controversy surrounding businesses in Busan over the city's up-and-coming fireworks festival. And finally, we'll learn about the National Lottery celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Yes, okay, we start with a very sad story about a young child that was killed. Can you tell us more? Yes, so a man in his 30s has been arrested on charges of killing an 8-year-old boy while driving under the influence in Seoul's Gangnam District. According to the legal sector on Monday, the Seoul Central District Court issued an arrest warrant for the man on Sunday. He faces charges of dangerous driving, causing an accident in a school zone resulting in the death of a child and drunk driving. Now, the court cited flight risk when issuing the warrant due to the seriousness of the crime. 
Right. So, Walter, how did it happen exactly? Can you give us more details about the accident itself? Yeah. So it happened last Friday at around 4:57 p.m. near an elementary school in the districts of Chongdam. Now, the man allegedly hit the third grader who was uh, crossing the street after getting off school. The suspect was making a left turn in front of the school's back gate to get home. Now, according to the reports, even after hitting the boy, the man drove 40 more meters before parking his car at home. The victim was transported to a nearby hospital but did not make it. Right. So, can you explain a bit more? You said he drove 40 more meters and parked his car at his home. Mm. What happened then? How were police able to find the suspect in the end? Okay, so five minutes after arriving home, the man decided to go back to the site of the accident after hearing a commotion outside. Now, the suspect is said to have told the police that he wasn't aware of the incident and that he had one or two glasses of beer before he took the wheel. However, the police found that the man's blood alcohol level stood at over 0.08%, enough for his license to be revoked. Now, police have secured dash cam footage from the man's vehicle and are trying to shed light on what happened exactly. Yes, the fact that this happened at a school zone as well means that the driver is likely to face a far stronger punishment uh, than if he was driving elsewhere. And considering that he had alcohol in his system as well, this mm. could turn into quite a significant case indeed. Right. OK, in the meantime, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us next? Yeah, so last week we talked about the 17th Busan Fireworks Festival set to be held next Saturday. Now, more than one million people are expected to visit the southern port city to check out the event, given that it will be taking place for the first time in three years. Though many are excited about seeing fireworks along, along the Guangali Beach and nearby areas, there have also been growing complaints about unreasonable prices charged by cafes and other businesses hoping to earn extra profit. Okay, so how much are we talking about? Well, one cafe which boasts having the best view of the Kwang'an Bridge located over the Kwang'ali Beach is charged, charging each person 100,000 won per hour. Now, that's around 77 US dollars. Now, if you want to check out the fireworks on the cafe's terrace, you'll have to pay an additional 20,000 won or around $15. One person complained about a sudden price hike for the hotel room that they booked before Busan City decided whether to hold the festival or not. The person initially paid 200,000 won, which is roughly 154 US dollars for the room. However, the hotel later called this customer and requested they pay an additional 600,000 won, around $460 for the room, or cancel their reservation in return for a refund. Now, this customer said such businesses are likely to overcharge people from other regions or countries during the festival. Right, this is understandably leaving a sour taste in people's mouths. Mm. Is there anything the authorities can do about this sort of price gouging? Well, the Suyong District Office, which houses the Guangali Beach, says it is cracking down on businesses that are asking customers to pay more or notifying customers that their reservations have been cancelled. However, the office said it has no grounds to crack down on businesses that have set unreasonable prices for services. This is not the first time Busan has seen controversy over its businesses charging ridiculously high prices. Back in October, when BTS held a concert to promote the country's bid to host the 2030 World Expo in the city, many businesses businesses in the southern port city were criticised for ripping off customers. Yes, the city seems to be gaining a rather unfortunate reputation. OK, let's swiftly move on to our final trending story. What else has been trending today? 
Yeah, so Lotto, the national lottery, is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. The Korea Lottery Commission, which operates under the finance ministry, said Monday that the lottery has held a total of 1,043 times between December 7th, 2002 and November 26th of this year. It also said that a total of 7,803 people had won the first prize. Winnings by those who hit the jackpot were estimated to total 15.9 trillion won, which is roughly 12 billion US dollars, meaning that each winner got around 2 billion won, around $1.5 million in prize money on average. Okay, what was the largest prize ever given to a lotto winner in South Korea? So the lottery conducted on April 12th, 2003, produced a single jackpot winner, and that person ended up grabbing some 40.7 billion won in prize money. That's around $31 million. Now, the smallest amount won was $406 million won, or $314,000, when 30 jackpot winners were named during the draw on May 18th, 2013. Okay, that's quite a range. Uh, mm. The lotto, it's been going 20 years strong now. What are lottery sales like in South Korea currently? Well, it has been rising. So ticket sales topped $2 trillion won in the early two. 2010s, exceeded 3 trillion won in 2013, and reached 5 trillion won uh, for the first time last year. This year, sales of lottery tickets amounted to 3.1 trillion won as of July. If this streak continues, the number is expected to reach 6 trillion won by the end of the year. Now, around half of the profit from these sales is used to pay commissions and finance a variety of public projects for the underprivileged, while the remainder goes to giving out the prize money. Okay, so a happy 20th birthday to the lotto in Korea. We'll wrap it up there, Walter. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. My name is Yute Pyongyang. I'm a Pansori singer and a member of the National Changul Company of Korea. And you are now listening to Korea 24. We finish up with our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for this, our staff editor Richard Larkin joins us in the studio now. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay, so let's start with the first story. What do you have for us? Kim Dussel's article in the entertainment section of the Korea Herald gives us information about the Jongro Culture Diversity Film Festival that kicks off this week. This is the festival's fourth year and will take place from Thursday until December 20th at the Emu Art Space in Jongro. Okay, so the Jongro Culture Diversity Film Festival. Yes. Can you tell us more? Its slogan is Stories of Yours, Mine and Ours. The festival aims to share the meaning and value of diversity through film. Eight films have been chosen to be screened as Films of the Year by the Jongdo Foundation for Arts and Culture. They include Licorice Pizza, Belfast, and Kim, Myung, Kim Ming Young of the Report Card. The article mentions that they look into diversity on topics of generation, era, relationships, and differences. The foundation also chose two directors to be creators of the year. They were Park chan Wook and Ryosuke Hamaguchi. Their works will also feature at the festival. Wow, it sounds uh, very interesting. And uh, various types of uh, movies and themes as well going on there. So uh, something for everyone, it seems, especially film buffs, though. That's right. It does sound interesting as there are cinema talks, meeting with the audience and master classes that will be held to discuss in-depth cultural diversity. For example, indie directors Lee Jae-eun 
and Im Ji Sun of Kim Min Young of the Report Card will meet with the audience on December 16th. The film was discussed on Movie Spotlight before, I believe, mm. so our listeners may know the general story. But for those who don't, it follows three girls that grow apart as they go on separate paths after they graduate high school. Tickets are free and available on the Jongro Foundation for Arts and Culture's website and blog. Okay, and as we said, the festival starts from Thursday until December 20th. Uh, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Well, next we are sticking with the movie theme. If you are a fan of the 2015 mega hit Veteran, then here is good news. Filming for the sequel will start this month. That's according to Kim Rand's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times. Yes, you called it a mega hit. It was very popular here in Korea. For our listeners who may not know about Veteran, though, can you give us a, a brief explanation of the plot? Sure. The first film, which is directed by Ryu Sung-wan, follows a team of detectives that fight for social justice against the rebellious heir of a powerful conglomerate, who is played by Yu Ah-in. As I said earlier, the film was a hit. It drew around 13.4 million filmgoers when it was screened in 2015. I did a little research online, and apparently... The film's budget was about $5 million and it earned over $90 million at the box office. The good news is that director Rue is back for the sequel. Yes, there is always that worry, though, when it comes to sequels. If there is a change in the director or the main cast, fans usually prefer the original and the right. second instalment does not uh, do as well in the uh, box office. That's right. But several major cast members of the original film are returning as well. They include actors Huang Jongmin, Jang Yunju and Oh Dae-hwan. So it seems like there will be familiarity for the fans. Mm. Filming is scheduled to finish at the first half of next year, but the release date hasn't been decided yet. Yes, uh, perhaps in the past uh, these sorts of films wouldn't have had sequels, but sequels are becoming more popular nowadays, especially with uh, we saw how well the Roundup did this year, the sequel uh, to the Madong Sok film. Yes, and I've seen recently a lot of K-dramas especially are starting to opt for second seasons as well, which is cool to see. So it is a trend that we're seeing. Okay, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. We wrap up our show today. Our Career 24 team would like to once again wish the South Korean national football team all the best for this next game against Brazil. The whole nation is behind you and whatever the result, we're proud of you already. We'll wrap it up there. Thank you for listening. We'll be back same time tomorrow. I've been your host, Won Jang-ho, and we hope you have a great day. Goodbye. KBS World Radio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're ready? Let's go.